This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Marden are just moments away to discuss fact, fiction, and flying saucers, the truth behind the misinformation, distortion, and derision by debunkers, government agencies, and conspiracy con men. Uh, my good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is with me in studio. We'll get to him in just a moment. First, uh, let me introduce the band. On the Gibson Flying V guitar, my fine rockabilly friend Ian Robertson is on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. And on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, Albert Vinzel. Hello, Albert. How are you? Albert is uh, here running our HOA, our Hangout on Air. And if you want to watch this radio transmission streamed live on YouTube, here's what you do. You go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Go to the top or near the top of the Twitter feed. Find the tweet containing the link to the HOA. Click and voila. Abracadabra, presto, changeo. You'll see me here in studio. And uh, Victor and Albert, and occasionally we even have uh, some guests up on uh, webcam as well. Uh, now it is time, very quickly, for a little segment we like to call What's in the Box, where my story produ- producer, occasional remote viewer, Albert Vinzel, attempts to transcend time and space and uh, determine the contents of this beautiful vintage humidor sitting on our desk here uh, in uh, Liberty Village. So, uh, Albert, I know you've been concentrating, you've been following the remote viewing protocols. What is in the box, Albert? All right, I, I'm going to guess the jogging. I guess jogging or someone jogging, like red, something heart healthy. Something heart healthy. Some, someone jogging. In the, it's, a, it's a box, Albert. I'm not, I'm not following you. What do you mean someone jogging? Um, maybe, maybe somehow related to jogging, like a squeeze ball. Something or related like to jogging. Oh, I see. Okay. Timer or something like that. 
a pedometer or something. I got you. Okay. We're just, just going to let that sit there. We'll reveal a little bit later in the program. And incidentally, if uh, those of you listening at home, uh, maybe following us on uh, on our HOA, if you want to take a, a, a stab at utilizing your remote viewing uh, skills, what are, what's the hashtag we're using, Albert? TCS Remote. All right, hashtag TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show, hashtag TCS Remote. And uh, you can tweet us and, uh, again, determine what's in the box, and we'll do the reveal a little bit later in the program. All right, let me crib from the, uh, the back here of fact fiction and flying saucers. It's no secret that the mainstream media has misinformed us for years about UFO studies conducted by highly regarded scientists at the finest universities in the country. The U.S. government has covered up the alien presence through misinformation, distortion, obfuscation, and ridicule. Some prominent politically connected scientists and professional writers have even participated in the cover-up. In fact, fiction and flying saucers, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin examine the wealth of archival documents that clearly demonstrate this cooperative disinformation effort and refute the false claims made by these professional scoffers. Friedman Friedman and Martin set the record straight by examining politically motivated misinformation and presenting the compelling evidence that separates fact from fiction. Before we get to uh, Stanton and Kathleen, first let me welcome Victor Vigiani back to the program. Victor is the executive director of Zeland Communications News Network, and the website is zlandcommunications.blogspot.ca. Victor, hello, how are you? Just great to be with you. Just fine, thanks. Do you know what's in the box? A pedometer or a can of beans or something. (laughs) Uh, That's a tough one. All right. We'll get to that a little bit later. Stan Friedman is a nuclear physicist who worked on a wide variety of advanced classified nuclear systems for major industrial companies. He began the civilian investigation of the Roswell incident, wrote Flying Saucers and Science and Top Secret, Magic, and co-authored Crash at Corona captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, and science was wrong. He's appeared on hundreds of radio and TV programs. He resides in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Stanton Friedman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm delighted to be here. And we are delighted to have you. A Kathleen Martin is a best-selling author, award-winning UFO researcher and lecturer, and a frequent guest on radio programs. Her expert testimony has been featured on the History, Discovery, National Geographic, Destination America channels. She is co-authored of Ch- uh, Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, Science Was Wrong, and The Alien Abduction Files. She resides near Orlando, Florida. Kathleen, welcome to you. Thanks. It's great to be with you tonight. Excellent. All right. Uh, first of all, let me uh, let me both ask you, um, putting together this book. Now, this is you two have collaborated uh, um, on a number of projects together. What is it? Uh, you know, what what makes for a good co-author? I mean, what? Why did you find Kathleen to be sort of uh, your dance partner, uh, Stanton, and Kathleen the same for you? Uh, why why Stanton? Well, uh, pretty straightforward, actually. We'd met. I had gotten involved in the Betty and Barney Hill story, uh, a television program, television station in Pittsburgh had told, I was living in Pittsburgh at the time, and had begun my my public career, if you will, by an appearance on KDKA, uh, which has a wide audience, the biggest station in town. And I was on a show, believe it or not, called Contact <laughs> several times. 
and uh, they apparently liked what I presented. There was a group called uh, UFO Research Institute there, and I was a member of that group. And uh, they told me, they called me to let me know that Betty and Barney Hill were coming to town. I'd read the book, The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller, and I read the Look Magazine articles. I was very intrigued. That was the first abduction case that got any publicity. And so I was intrigued, especially by the star map, and wound up being involved in trying to figure out what that means. Anyway, uh, they not only told me that Betty and Barney were coming to town and were going to be on a particular program, but they told me where they were staying, which is very unusual, as I'm sure you're aware. And uh, I contacted them. We had dinner together. So it gave me a person-to-person chance to evaluate them, see whether they were enlarging upon what was in the book. Uh, And I was very favorably impressed. Well, Kathy, which you haven't mentioned, is uh, Betty's niece. Right. And it was because of that connection that we met and we saw each other at conferences, MUFON conferences and stuff. And we found, uh, I shouldn't say this, but I will, we're both Leos. We have an approach toward let's get the facts straight uh, before putting our mouths in gear and our pens in, in hand, so to speak. And we found that we worked extremely well together. So, you know, we started appearing together at conferences. We heard each other speak and so forth. And she asked me, uh, if I wanted to do something uh, uncaptured uh, about the star map, and I did. I very much wanted to do that. And so the the uh, science was wrong followed because we both had a concern about getting the facts straight. In, in ufology, there's too darn much research by proclamation rather than investigation. Right, we you believe that in right. going to the archives and looking at the documents and digging out the facts instead of proclaiming, well, it's probably like this or like that. And we see a lot of that in ufology and in every field. Right. People are too lazy, for one thing. It's hard work. Uh, and it costs some money, too, uh, traveling. I live on the East Coast. Kathy lives in uh, not far from uh, Orlando. And the presidential archives are some distance from there, <laughs> and the national archives are some distance. So I've had, I will admit, some research grants from the Fund for UFO Research and from uh, Robert Bigelow. Uh, those really come in handy because there isn't a lot of money available to cover costs. No, that's true. How about you, for you, Kathleen? Well, I first asked Stanton to work with me on Captured because he was the scientist who was able to find other scientists who were willing to evaluate Marjorie Fish's uh, work on Betty's star map. Um, She had uh, been able to identify the stars on Betty's map, and uh, Stanton had promoted that uh, work. He had published on it. And so I wanted a co-author... Uh, who would be willing to work, uh, write a couple of chapters on the star map. And he said that he would be willing to do so. Uh, that gave me the opportunity to get to know Stanton as a person. And 
uh, we began to discuss writing a second book together, Science Was Wrong, in which each of us would write uh, half of the book. We each wrote seven chapters. Uh, the qualities that Stanton has that I like uh, are that he is a meticulous researcher. He doesn't embellish his facts. He uh, is personable. He has a great sense of humor, so it can be, become rather tense writing a book, but it's great that we can laugh together as we're doing it. So I, I really enjoy that part of it. He's done a great deal of research in archival collections, and <coughs> it interests me greatly. Uh, I had to travel to uh, uh, some archival collections myself, and he joined me uh, during one of those trips, so we had the opportunity to do our research together as well. Uh, when I went alone, I uh, shared my files with him. I had photographed or photocopied uh, many, many files, probably up to a 1,000 pages just for this book alone. And uh, he had stacks of archival documents as well that he was willing to send to me and give to me. So we found that we work very well together. Uh, we have similar writing styles. We enjoy writing what could be a boring history book uh, and making it into a very exciting, easy-to-read book that will be entertaining and keep people's attention. Well, That's you something that we seem to do well together. You certainly do. Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers, the latest Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, Victor Vigiani in studio. When we come back, one of the things that jumped out at me immediately in this book is, uh, you know, people are always demanding uh, evidence and so forth. Well, never mind the documents. What about hard evidence? And you, you, you point out there are over 5,000 cases where physical... Um, physical evidence actually has been has been recovered and uh, we'll talk about that and much more when we come back victor vigiani in studio from zealand news network stanton friedman kathleen martin on the other side here on the conspiracy show stay with us shaking the world and seeing what falls this is the conspiracy show with richard sarrett from zoomer radio you're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a programming note next week, Scott Bennett on uh, WikiLeaks. And uh, Marty Leeds on Math Magic next week on The Conspiracy Show. Right now, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin stay with us. Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. Victor Vigiani in studio. We'll get to him in a moment. But I, I just I wanted to follow up on something I mentioned before the break. And this is just a real eye-opener right out of the – it's right in the introduction here. Uh, you, you cite 5,000 reports collected of physical trace cases from 89 countries – 5,000 reports of physical trace cases. What are we talking about when we, when we say physical trace cases? Well, the, the person who did that work in particular is a man named Ted Phillips. He was a protege of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was the Air Force, uh, an astronomer, chairman of the department at Northwestern University, and the Air Force scientific consultant of Project Blue Book for 
19 years, and he uh, got Ted involved, and he's collected these reports, and it's helped that Alan let people know that uh, if you have such a report, uh, you know, let him know and talk to Ted, uh, contact him. And the thing is, they come from 80 countries, um, and we're talking about people who are close to a saucer on the ground, uh, either sitting on the ground or just above the ground. And some of the physical traces that are found include small footprints, burn circles, burn rings, landing gear marks, that sort of thing. And quite frankly, after you've read your first 200 such cases, it's dull. The same thing is happening all over the world. Uh, same reports. Ted has visited hundreds of these cases, incidentally, these sites. And so uh, people think, or, or the nasty, noisy negativists, as I like to call them when I'm being polite, <laughs> uh, think that uh, we only have lights in the sky seen from a long ways away, and who knows what they are. Not at all. Many of these cases, are these objects are observed within 100 feet. Uh, and, you know, there's no mistaking. Uh, there's a long, big difference between a light in the sky thousands of feet away uh, and, and an object sitting on the ground just uh, uh, less than 100 yards, less than 100 feet from you. So you have to look at these cases to what's going on here. The objects are consistently, the landed objects are less than 100 feet in diameter. We're not talking about motherships here. There, we do have reports of motherships. Uh, I remember one case uh, that civil engineer was able to triangulate by talking to enough witnesses. The object was between six-tenths and one mile long. These aren't the things that are seen on or near the ground. And people who say that sounds weird, remember that the United States has aircraft carriers, huge ships, that can nuclear-powered ones that can operate for 18 years without refueling. They carry about 75 small airplanes, which can operate for, you know, maybe up to two hours on a good day uh, before they need to be refueled. So we have a mothership, if you will, uh, and a little Earth excursion module, <laughs> if you, I, I'd like to call them that. So that, that's a very good place to start. Also, because a lot of these cases involve radar and visual ground radar, airborne radar, uh, you can't say there's nothing there. Right, right. The Stephenville Lights is a great example where you have, you know, you have radar, you have, uh, what do they call those, paint skins, right? Yeah. Uh, let's yeah. get let's get uh, Victor Vigiani in here. Victor? How you doing, Stanton? Hi. Yeah, good, to, good to talk to you again. Uh, I just want to bring up a point regarding, um, I guess, two respected uh, groups that have really... Um, taking a perspective on this. N number one is MUFON. Um, there's a lot of finger pointing going on now uh, towards MUFON to become more engaged with uh, with stating the facts as they know them are, as they as they know they are in, in terms of um, uh, the political implications uh, of these kinds of things, that uh, MUFON's just not standing up and saying, let's look at the facts. And then the, there's another group of pilots. The pilots are seeing these things on a daily basis, and they're restricted in their perception and how they can even begin to talk about it. How do you see those two groups folding in to at least highlight some of the things that uh, you point out as disinformation or information itself? Well, let, 
let's face it, there have been literally thousands of pilot sightings. The problem is pilots don't want to stick their necks out because they're afraid of losing their job. And so there is an organization to which they can report their sighting without having their name be attached to it. Somebody has the rules, if you will, uh, the entry books. And uh, Dr. Richard Haynes is the primary scientist of this group. He worked for NASA, was a scientist for NASA for many years. And he has written even written some books about uh, pilot sightings, say, in, um, in Southeast Asia and in other places. And, you know, uh, I fly a lot. I sure hope that the guy who's running that airplane knows what's going on around him and keeps his eyes open and avoids any problems with uh, an unplanned interaction with another vehicle. Uh, So I tend to trust pilots, especially when you get a consistency of reports, the behavior as well as the appearance. Uh, you know, we don't have, so far as we know, airplanes that can start, stop, move straight up, straight down, silently, make right-angle turns without slowing down first and then speeding up after they make the turn. Obviously, such ca- characteristics would be great for military systems. Uh, if we had them, we'd use them. Uh, and there have been a few wars in which we have used airplanes. Uh, and so uh, I-, I think... I like pilot sightings. I'm not saying pilots are infallible. Uh, nobody's infallible. But, you know, the question isn't, are all UFO sightings alien spacecraft? The question is, are any? And our answer is yes, very definitely. They're manufactured vehicles that haven't been made on Earth. That means they come from someplace else. Very straightforward. Let me work at Kathleen Martin in here. And, Kathleen, when, when debunkers uh, talk about things like... Uh, UFOs, ETs. Uh, they talk about the, you know, the, and, and we're talking about the nature of the cover-up here. They always say, "How do you keep something like that secret?" Well, there's a wonderful example in here that I've often used with people in, ta- in terms of, you know, how you keep a conspiracy quiet, and that has to do with things like the Manhattan Project. Can you just expand on that little, uh, a little bit? It's a wonderful example. Yes, uh, you have to realize that there are different levels of secrecy, and so. Uh, Secret information can be um, made public, it can be declassified. Uh, Top secret information is sometimes declassified. But when you get to top secret code word, that is the kind of information that you can get on a need-to-know basis only. And you have to have the clearance to go to that information if you need it. That's the kind of information that the public cannot gain access to. And those people who are involved in this, uh, who have the clearances, will not reveal that information. They don't tell their wives. Uh, Stanton Friedman, for example, had a Q Q clearance, uh, which was a secret clearance, a top secret clearance, when he was a nuclear physicist. Uh, He had information in the programs that he was developing. He couldn't tell his wife. He didn't know who his wife would talk to. You can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. And you could get into a tremendous uh, problem for your country, for yourself, for your family. Not only that, but uh, it is against the law. 
violators uh, could face up to uh, several years in prison uh, and uh, heavy fines as well. So the individuals who hold these secrets uh, have to prove that they are very, very loyal to their company, to their country, and that they uh, will not reveal the the secret information. I think the example that you cite in the book, uh, as it uh, refers to the Manhattan Project, is you know, some of the wives who were wondering what their husbands, who were involved, the scientists in the Manhattan Project, were doing, and they were strongly urged to listen to the radio on August 6, 1945, and that's how they found out what their husbands had been up to. That is correct. So, you know, another example of uh, the fact that secrets can and will be kept. Actually, one of the things that I wanted to, to, to try to shed some light on, uh, Kathleen, is this idea of the incredible amount of secrecy that you have discovered, both you and Standard have clearly discovered that exists. Um, I mean, it's, it's a monolith. I mean, let's look at it clearly for what it is. It's a monolith. So, I mean, there's always this point of view that it's self-evident to me anyway, is that if, if, if you've got this kind of information at, at your disposal, um, and, and you say, well, it doesn't exist. Well, why does the secrecy exist? It, they seem to be two separate entities, the, the, the issue itself and the secrecy. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Why all the secrecy if there's nothing there? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and we have shown evidence that this information is being covered up, uh, not only uh, at the official level, uh, through uh, Air Force Regulation 200-2, for example, that was a Project Blue Book uh, regulation uh, that stated that uh, the Project Blue Book would inform the news media on UFOs only when they had been positively identified as familiar objects. Uh, the names of the people involved, intercept and investigation procedures, were classified. And radar data was classified and could not be revealed. That was put into effect in 1953. Then in 1954, we had the Joint Army-Navy-Air Force Regulation Number 146. You might think of it as JNAP 146, where mm -hmm. it became a crime for, the military, for military personnel to discuss classified UFO reports with unauthorized persons. Violators faced up to two years in prison and fines up to $10,000. That was after the Robertson panel uh, made the decision to cover up the information that the government had discovered in their studies on UFOs. W would, you where think, yeah, would you think, Kathleen, if, that the fact that there's a secret around an issue, does that not prove its, its uh, existence? Well, um, let me just jump in there. If you want to see proof of this, just look at the 156 top secret Umbra NSA, National Security Agency, UFO documents that got released way back in the 80s. You can read one sentence per page. Everything else is whited out. And now if you try to get a set of these, uh, gee whiz, we can't find the originals, they said. About the same time, we found uh, loads, does many dozens of CIA top secret Umbra UFO documents. They're all blocked out. And uh, people say, well, why don't you just scrape off the black? Well, you get a Xerox. You don't get the original documents. 
And, the, you know, anybody, I can guarantee you, will laugh at my lectures when I show these. Uh, because they're real. Uh, another example to indicate the magnitude of the problem is uh, Lockheed developed the stealth aircraft. They spent $10 billion over 10 years in secret. We didn't know until they were finished the development, so to speak. And so, uh, and also, I better add here, I've had people challenging, well, Stan, all that stuff's on the computer. You can just sit at your desk and look at all those files. What, what are you talking about here? Well, you can't. Most of this stuff is not on the computer. It hasn't been scanned in. The files that I've been to 20 archives. And believe me, there's tons, and I mean that literally, of paper at these archives. You can't just sit at your computer because the stuff hasn't been scanned. So you gotta, you got to put some effort into it. And the government, the journalists haven't. And we better add in something else here. Back in the 70s, there was a thing called the Church Committee, Senator Frank Church, uh, United States Senate. They did an investigation about the media and the CIA. And much to everybody's surprise, it turned out there were hundreds of reporters that had a connection with the CIA. Mockingbird. That was Operation well, Mockingbird, wasn't it? Well, there were several different operations. And the, the thing is that uh, some of the publications, Life and Time, for example, were proud of the fact that their reporters were, uh, you know, helping out on national security. There were other uh, organizations where a connection was not able to be publicized at all. But it came as quite a shock to people. Uh, I had a contract uh, way back in the early 60s to look at Soviet work with regard to compact nuclear reactors for space vehicle applications. And the place that has um, tons of Soviet research uh, that's been translated is Patel Memorial Institute. And while I was visiting there for my contract, I correctly predicted that the Russians would be putting nuclear reactors in space. Uh, there were I found comments from uh, scientists who'd been traveling and somehow would make a report when they got back what they heard at conferences, what Soviet scientists were saying. Stanton, uh, excuse my uh, interruption. I got a, I got a break here. We'll uh, pick up on that point when we come back. Fact, fiction, and flying saucers. Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, Victor Vigiani in studio. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. All right. Welcome back. Uh, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin are with us. Fact, fiction and flying saucers. And Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio. We're, we're tight for time. Uh, I want to I want to get to um, 
sort of another more overt way of sort of keeping a lid on on this whole arena, and that has to do with direct threats to UFO researchers. Kathleen, you had some interesting findings that, that you published in this book. I mean, I think you profiled uh, or, or mentioned 18 specific cases of UFO researchers, and, and virtually all of them had been either threatened or had computers tampered with. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, I decided to do uh, in sort of an informal questionnaire that I sent out to a number of uh, UFO researchers who were fairly prominent, and also to experiencers who had gone public with their stories and were speaking on the lecture circuit. And uh, almost everyone told me that they had been tampered with, that had either received veiled threats, uh, some had received direct threats, uh, their computers might have had uh, ver- the latest very good uh, antivirus software, and they were hacked and they were destroyed. Uh, there were all sorts of things. Sometimes people's homes were broken into, and uh, I was uh, surprised at this. The reason that I asked that is that I was speaking at a conference, and a man made some veiled threats towards me. And uh, so I wanted to know how widespread this was and found out that it really was quite widespread. That kind of resistance, uh, I guess, is to be expected to some degree. Um, you know, it's an understanding that we all have. But I'd like to kind of take it in a different direction. Um, the the evolution of this whole concept of the uh, abduction phenomenon, and going back into the fifties and and what it was to begin, uh, and how it was portrayed then, and how it's evolved since uh, since uh, you know Bud's work, and even uh, since Dr. Mack's work. How how do you see the whole idea? of these, whatever they are, these beings somehow tampering with uh, the human species. And it's, it seems to be quite direct and, and uh, indisputable. How, how do you see that phenomenon evolving and, and its history affecting where we go? Well, when, when Bud was alive and was researching this, he took a rather negative view upon all of it. And, and of course, Dr. Mack took a more positive view toward it. But... Uh, Bud was focusing upon uh, a, what appeared to be a longitudinal genetic study where these beings were abducting humans and taking genetic material, uh, reproductive material, and uh, growing these uh, sort of hybrid beings in gestational tanks uh, until, and somehow raising them uh, somewhere on a craft or on a base, and uh, that is very distressing when you think that the humans have not consented to do this, have not consented to take part in any kind of experiment, and they are being experimented on like l- lab rats. That certainly is not something that uh, the government would want the general population to know about, because our military and no military uh, force on this world can retaliate. No one can protect experiencers from having these experiences. At the same time, the trend that we're heading in now is that many of these experiencers are stating that they had made a contract to participate in this uh, and 
that all of this is an effort to raise human consciousness uh, and that it is for a positive purpose. So that's sort of a shift in attitude, although David Jacobs still contends that these uh, ETs are, are doing it for the purpose of taking over the Earth. He believes in that they are already moving hybrids into apartments in New Jersey and perhaps elsewhere. Uh, but that is not consistent with the general trend, the information that I'm receiving. I'm MUFON's Director of Experiencer Research, and I'm also on the Board of Directors of the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters. I've been doing this research for a very long time. And I'm finding these new trends very, very interesting. There are still individuals who uh, are claiming that they are having highly negative experiences uh, and, and being mistreated, but it seems to be a much smaller percentage of individuals than it has been in the past, whereas others are moving toward this consciousness-raising trend. All right. Well, uh, this is a short segment. We'll take a time. We'll come back and um, we'll get into uh, some of the debunkers, the great debunkers that you both tackle in fact fiction and flying saucers, people like Dr. Howard Menzel and Philip J. Class. We'll do that when we come back. We'll also grab a call or two if time permits. Victor Vigiani, Zealand News Network in studio, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin on the phone. Again, fact fiction and flying saucers. More on The Conspiracy Show right after this. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To All talk right. to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, we'll get back to uh, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin in just one second. I just uh, want to wrap up uh, what's in the box, and a number of people have uh, tweeted using the hashtag TCS Remote, and uh, someone thought it was a pyramid-shaped yellow or gold uh, object. Someone mentioned a silver chain bracelet, uh, a Sidney Crosby hockey card. Uh, no one's really close, although the the silver object is uh, the silver chain bracelet is somewhat close. Albert, let's reveal what's in the box, shall we? And then we'll move on. Okay, open that up. And there we go. It's a harmonica or a mouth organ. All right. Nobody really close uh, this week, but uh, we'll try that again next week, time permitting. What's in the box? All right, uh, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers. Let's grab a quick call. Uh, Dave has been patient. He's been waiting from New Jersey. Dave, good evening. Welcome. Good evening. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, you called in last week, and you, you were anxious to speak with Stanton this week. So uh, you've got the floor. Very quickly, your question. Well, first, Dr. Freeman, I just want to tell you what an honor it is to finally speak with you. I've been following your work for 30 years. Um, I had a question regarding some information I discovered called the Mark IV control display system, a vehicle that... Um, 
from July 1960, uh, Lear Corporation was developing um, for the U.S. Air Force, ARDC, and WADD. The only thing I was ever able to find is I cross-referenced from the same month of July 1960 in a magazine called Aviation Week and Space Technology. It also speaks and has pictures about this Mark IV vehicle that it was in production from another company called Avco, A-V-C-O. Yeah. Um, I just was wondering, was that something that went black or was never developed or was it part of the beginning of the, the dinosaur project? I don't think it was part of the dinosaur project. What what we're talking about here, the, the key thing that you uh, sent me, the key comment was that this system had four nuclear weapons, or five nuclear weapons on board. Correct. And that there were facilities so that four guys could stay in space for, well, a month, 30 days, something like that. That is correct. And uh, we need a little historical context here. When the Russians and the United States were going at each other in the beginning of the Cold War, uh, as nuclear weapons were developed and the United States got caught a little bit short, the Russians were much faster at jumping on the nuclear bandwagon than anybody expected them to be. The head of the program, General, uh, the general who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, thought in 1948 it would take the Russians eight years before they exploded their first nuclear weapon. So what do we have to worry about? Besides, they don't even have a means for reaching us. Well, it took them only a year after that. 1949 exactly. was the first uh, Soviet nuclear weapon. And they developed ICBMs, and people forget the reason we went to the moon was to show that we're as good as the Russians because they had the first satellite, they had the first flight around the moon, they had the first animal in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first to see the other side of the moon. Uh, we were getting creamed, and so the you know the program, the the lunar uh, the Apollo program was was set up. Uh, but along the way, there were negotiations going on as they both recognized that uh, mutually assured destruction didn't seem a, a great way for the world to proceed. You hit me, I'll hit you back, and we'll both get destroyed. That's That doesn't make sense for any government. And I, I should mention that there was this enormous increase in the power of the nuclear weapons. The first one released the energy of about 16,000 tons of dynamite. That's in 1945. The first H-bomb in 1952 released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite. And the Russians set up one, set off one uh, a few years later that released the energy of 57 million tons of dynamite. One stinking weapon. And I use that term advisedly. I don't like nuclear weapons. So, How does that Mark IV program that, that Dave in New Jersey mentioned, how does that fit into... Well, because there was an agreement reached, that program uh, planned to have nuclear weapons in space with a crew ready to release one on the other guy if the need arose. Because how could you do anything about a guy going around the planet with nuclear weapons on board and sitting just waiting. Right, like a doomsday plan. 
plane, a doomsday Wasn't that plane. in 62 or 63 that the U.S. and Russia came to that agreement, though? Well, there was a preliminary agreement, then there was a later agreement. This stretched out over a period of time. But they finally did agree on the concept of mutually assured destruction. Uh, I, and the system you were talking about, the funding did, was not, did not proceed for developing such systems and systems and it, it's one example and there aren't many of countries on this planet trying to do what was sensible okay i want to work it back into the ufo field if i could dave in new jersey thank you for that i'm glad you had uh, a chance to speak with stanton victor no, thank you for letting me get back on the air and thank you dr freeman it's been right. a real pleasure mister please thank you <laughs> the the idea of a, a cadre of people, Stanton and, and Kathleen, that you've identified very clearly that uh, seem to have made it their business to debunk everything to do with this issue. Um, I don't want to necessarily get into personalities, but the, the whole idea of a group of people in, a, in an or, almost orchestrated way gets together to debunk this issue. How, how did you deal with that in, in, in this revelation in the book? Well, one of the things was we found, much to my surprise, I discovered uh, letters from Donald, Dr. Donald Howard Menzel to President uh, John F. Kennedy, saying that there's one area he may be of assistance to him. This is after Kennedy was elected in 1960. Uh, I've had a longer continuous association with the National Security Agency of anybody about 30 years, and when we are properly cleared to each other, uh, I can tell you more. Now, the kicker here is Menzel was a total debunker, everybody thought, about UFOs, and nobody knew about this connection with the NSA, of all people. It turns out Menzel was a world-class cryptologist, also in secret. I found this material. I had to get permission from three different people to look at his files at Harvard. And so that was a real shocker. Here we have the top debunker who was trying to tell the Air Force, he could explain all sightings. Don't worry about it. Leave it alone. I'll, I'll do it for you. Uh, and then we find out, after he was dead, that he was a member of the NSA and had, did all kinds of highly classified work for government agencies. So you start looking around then when you realize, hey, some of these guys had uh, a big, deep background and highly classified stuff that we didn't know anything about. And then you also find evidence that they're making comments. Uh, Phil Glass was attacking UFOs all the time. He was going to have a prosaic explanation for all cases. And I get a great laugh at my lectures when I show a copy of his check to me for $1,000 for proving him wrong about the Majestic 12 program uh, documents, the typeface. Now, here, here's the kicker. How could a guy who's smart, and Phil was smart, and worked for Aviation Week and Space Technology, claim that the NSC, National Security Council, used only elite type in their documents back in the 50s? How could he claim that when I found out later uh, he had never been to the Eisenhower Library. They have 250,000 pages of NSC documents. I found many examples of the same typeface. He was giving me $100 each up to a maximum of 10 Now, the ludicrousness of that claim, when he'd never even been to the library, never seen these documents, he'd gotten 10 documents by mail 
I don't know how many he got, but he showed 10 that were done in the elite type. But that's typical of the mystery here. Why did these guys, Menzel, I can understand, he was working under national security. Uh, Dr. Edward U. Condon, we talk about at some length. How could he make such ludicrous statements? I mean, he was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He was president, elected president of the American Physical Society, president of another big scientific organization. Uh, Kathy, you've got this down pat. What was his ridiculous statement about? This is uh, in his his book on the on the Condon report, and yes. he made the statement: "Quote: It is safe to assume that no intelligent life." outside our solar system has any possibility of visiting Earth any time in the next 10,000 years. Now, how could any scientist make such a stupid claim? We can't predict 100 years in advance, no less 10,000. <laughs> he knew better than that. But it was almost like it was a cottage industry, Stan. You know, these people were just setting something up, and they were sort of like just watching the parade go by and commenting on it and doing everything they can do in their power to say, well, there's really nothing to it, but, you know, wink, 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 we all know there really is. And we found that they were all connected to each other, and all of the information, the important information, was in the correspondence files uh, between the men who were cooperating in uh, disinforming the public about UFOs. Uh, they were collaborating together to uh, make sure that scientists did not take part in UFO conferences uh, or debates. They wanted it completely separated from uh, the scientific community. There had been a great deal of scientific interest in all of this up to that point but it became taboo and it remains taboo they were highly successful in the work that they did and what our book does is it shows the interwoven pattern of me these men uh, their conversations the the way they went about disinforming the public and making sure that no federal funding was ever given again for the scientific study of UFOs. All right, uh, Stanton and uh, Kathleen, thank you so much uh, for spending an hour with us. It goes by too quickly. I appreciate your time. Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers, The Truth Behind the Misinformation, Distortion, and Derision by Debunkers, Government Agencies, and Conspiracy Con Men. Thank you to you both. Thanks. Check our website. Having us on. What, uh, give us the website quickly. Uh, StantonFriedman.com and Kathleen-Marden.com. All right. Thank you to you both. Victor Vigiani, thank you as always. Pleasure to be here. All right. My website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this program. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y because I love you, R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 
And thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, your parents' basement loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Hello to all of you listening to the podcast on Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, TalkZone.com. Uh, the affiliates, of course, across North America, from Alaska to Lubbock, Texas. Uh, the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads. And, of course, those of you streaming us live on YouTube through our Hangout On Air, HOA, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. A plasma physicist, John Brandenburg, author of Death on Mars, is standing by to discuss evidence for an ancient civilization on Mars and its destruction in a massive nuclear holocaust. Uh, first, uh, let me uh, uh, say hello to um, Ian Robertson, our technical producer, Albert Vinzel, our story producer and occasional remote viewer, and, of course, uh, Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zeland Communications News Network, uh, the website zlandcommunications.blogspot.ca. Hello, Victor. Always a pleasure to be with you, Richard. Looking forward to this show. Indeed. Indeed we are. Uh, let's get right to it, shall we? John Brandenburg, a Ph.D., is a plasma physicist. He did his graduate work in California at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in controlled plasmas for fusion power. And he has worked in defense, energy, and space research. Dr. Brandenburg was also part of the Clementine mission to the moon, which discovered water at the moon's poles. However, the focus of his scientific career has been to complete the great effort of Einstein to unify the two long-range forces of nature, gravity and electromagnetism. His new book is Death on Mars. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, I'm just great, and it's a great honor to be on your show, sir. A real pleasure. Well, this is, uh, <laughs> I was going to say earth-shattering, but I guess we should say Mars-shattering. This, <laughs> no doubt about that. Um, yeah. The, the fact that you're, like, you're... I'm glad pre- we can laugh about it. <laughs> well, well, you know, what they say, time plus, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy, but we're talking 250 million years, I think, you know... We can laugh at it by now. Yeah. yeah. But the idea that, I mean, you are presenting this stuff to the Pentagon. That's to me, this information, this, this oh, evidence. That, well, when we discovered it, we... When we discovered there were nuclear weapon signatures on Mars, um, at the urging of Vince DiPietro, my co-worker, who was one of the original researchers on the face in Cydonia, the, pyramid, the DNM pyramid, um, we uh, decided. I decided we had to inform the Pentagon, and um, we were able to do that through a back channel. And uh, we briefed one of a representative of the. Defense Intelligence Agency, and he was very sober and took careful notes and said he they'd get back to us through channels. And um, about six months later, uh, they got back to me and said, uh, and as usual with the U.S. intelligence um, community, their response to my question was a question. I said, well, what am I? What should I do about this? And they said, why don't you publish it? And so I uh, began to figure out how to get this into the mainstream scientific literature. Uh, one way we, uh, one way I looked at was that on Earth there were natural nuclear reactors in Africa, 
operating about a billion years ago, and um, these were a very natural event. Um, water, groundwater got into very rich uranium deposits and started uh, a natural nuclear reactor going, um, with the uranium ore being very much enriched with uranium-235 in those days. It's a billion years ago. So I, I uh, hypothesized that that had occurred on Mars. However, uh, as I presented that at scientific conferences, and that ended up as a Wikipedia article, by the way. Uh, I get honorable mention there on natural nuclear reactors. Uh, they, people pointed out that it was giving the wrong signature for a nuclear reactor, which has um, moderated neutrons, low-energy neutrons. Um, you know, the, this would not produce what we saw on Mars, only a, a fast neutron reaction, uh, as in a nuclear weapon would produce it. We also found then two big radioactive scars on Mars, one in a place called Mare Acidalium near Cydonia, and the other one in Utopia Planitia, uh, which happens to be near a other site of what looks like archaeology on Mars called Galaxius Chaos. These are NASA-assigned names. By Excuse the way. me, John, what is a radioactive scar exactly? Uh, it's an area of Mars that is more radioactive than the surroundings. And um, I have a web page up called lifeonmars.pub, and people can visit that and they can see all of the data uh, I have you know, laid out. And um, on Mars, there's two areas of radioactive potassium, um, and then there are also, at that, those same areas, there's also radioactive thorium which is a naturally radioactive element. And um, what's interesting is in the center of those areas is a lot of molt, is a lot of glass, as if uh, like a kind of a volcanic glass, but it's been etched by acid. And this is also, uh, this is detected by infrared light. Uh, in, glass gives a special reflectance in infrared light. And um, they discovered that the, this, this matches what's called trinitite, which is a type of glass created in nuclear explosions by dust being pulled up into the fireball of a nuclear weapon going off. What's also interesting is there are no craters at these sites. Why is that significant? It indicates that whatever happened went off in midair. It was not a, if it had been a natural nuclear reactor, it would have gone off under the ground in some kind of uranium deposit or something like that, and uh, it would have created a large crater. Instead, there are, is no crater. There's only a broad, shallow depression, and this is typical of what you call an airburst in nuclear weapons terminology. You must understand, I went to school to study nuclear fusion energy, and part of the time I spent studying laser fusion, which is creating a miniature hydrogen bomb, and so I ended up working down at the end of the lab where they did nuclear weapons design. In fact, I was had the dubious honor of being there when they invented the neutron bomb. And uh, you had to understand the mindset. Uh, so I, I learned a lot about nuclear weapons from just working there, and the guys down the hall told me, John, the neutron bomb is great because it only destroys people. 
Right. Lose all the valuable yes, stuff. Exactly. cars, buildings. That is indeed. Bridges <laughs> intact. Interesting mindset. And I'm mindset. sitting there as a graduate student uh, drinking my coffee and smiling and nodding. <laughs> Isn't technology grand? Yes. Yes, it will. You know, it, some people get a little too close to the problem and it becomes a blind spot to them. They lose the, you know, the big, uh, the big picture view of it. In any case, um, so I had become quite familiar with uh, nuclear weapons, the basic uh, physics and design of nuclear weapons while I was at Livermore. And um, so I, uh, what happens in a hydrogen bomb is a, a fission bomb usually set, is used to set off the hydrogen reaction. A small atomic bomb compresses a ball of hydrogen isotopes or hydrogen lithium isotopes. You can read about this all on Wikipedia, by the way. And uh, it used to be classified, but now it isn't. And the ball is compressed and basically turns into a star, or rather kind of a miniature supernova. And then what they do is they wrap the outer casing of the um, bomb with uranium or thorium. And the neutrons released by the hydrogen reaction are very powerful and very energetic, and they actually fission the normally inert uh, uranium-238 and thorium, thus doubling the violence of the explosion, the explosive yield. And this creates an enormous amount of fallout, but it's also a cheap way to double the yield of your hydrogen bomb. And so a standard hydrogen bomb in the arsenals of all the major nations on Earth uh, is basically a mixed hydrogen fission reaction. And that appears to, uh, that creates an enormous amount of an isotope called uh, xenon-129. It's a, one of the family of isotopes of uh, xenon, and it's characteristic of fast neutron reactions, as in a bomb or, uh, or special reactors used to make plutonium. And it would have a half-life of at least 250 million years? Oh, no, the, uh, the uranium, uh, xenon-129 is actually stable. It will be around at the end of the universe. It's, uh, it's a sta- it a, many people worry about, you know, of course, the radioactive isotopes created by nuclear explosions, but this isotope is actually stable. So it's, it's, uh, it bears witness even a billion years after the fact. And so how are you estimating that it's 250 million years ago that this oh, nuclear uh, explosion... that is based on... <clears throat> appears to be the time when the climate on Mars changed from being Earth-like to um, what it is now. The ocean on Mars appears to have lasted until about a quarter of a billion years ago. And the atmosphere was there yes, until about... And in order to have a liquid ocean, you had to have a dense atmosphere and and uh, the greenhouse effect caused by a dense CO2 atmosphere to make the water liquid. And um, also we have, uh, that's just a rough estimate, though. Uh, We have uh, one meteorite from Mars that is heavily bombarded with neutrons, and it's 180 million years old, and it's a lava sandwich. It's actually two lava flows fused together, that are, were apparently very close uh, in age, 
and one of them shows heavy marks of uranium, uh, I mean of uh, irradiation, the other one doesn't. So approximately 180 million years ago to 250 million years ago appears to be the time frame that this occurred. All right. What's a quarter billion years among friends? Let's. Uh, I know. Well, <laughs> we'll take a time out, John. You, uh, we'll, we'll get back uh, into this in a big way. John Brandenburg, plasma physicist, author of Death on Mars. Victor Vigiani in studio. More in a moment right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. From Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. John Brandenburg is with us, plasma physicist and the author of Death on Mars. And he says there is clear evidence of a uh, nuclear holocaust taking place on the red planet some 250 million years ago. Who had nuclear weapons 250 million years ago? That's the uh, obviously the million-dollar question. Let me work uh, Victor Vigiani in here. Yeah, I, actually, that's the, one of the points that I want to try to to broach. Um, in in a sense, John, um, your your research, John, says mm-hmm. that that this is a unique event. You know, it happened in a certain specific way in two places, in two places on yep. Mars. It wasn't something that just sort of happened as a natural set of. Uh, you uh, know, there's no known it, phenomena right. that can yeah. create this. So, so, I mean, natural phenomena. Yeah. So the, the only other logical, unless I'm taking a different position here, uh, someone had to create those conditions. Yes. And so uh, does that not allude to uh, the existence of something? Let's leave that there for a second but and go back to the whole idea of your communication with the Pentagon and their acceptance of the fact that you should actually publish. Is that not a tacit yeah. admission that something's going on here, that they want to release it in, in a, uh, through a back yeah. door or something? How's that working? Uh, I've spent a great deal of time uh, thinking what were their motiva- motivations. I, I was a, somebody working for the U.S. government at the time as a contractor, and uh, if they had said, we, uh, Dr. Brandenburg, this is, you've stumbled on something classified, please don't talk about it to anybody, I would have just naturally accepted that. Instead, they basically waved me ahead. Apparently... They want this to come out, and the U.S. government has apparently known about this since 1976. Um, now, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased to hear this is conspiracy radio. I didn't think Canadians believed in conspiracy <laughs> theories. <laughs> oh, no, no. Most Americans view that the Canadians are much more psychologically healthy than we are. Well, we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it must be, paranoia must be contagious. But uh, anyway, the U.S. government has known about this since, at least as a possibility, since about 1976, when we landed with the two Viking probes, and they sampled the atmosphere and found the Xenon-129, and um, which is a clear indicator. Uh, I've shown this to other uh, nuclear physicists who are you know, familiar with uh, forensics of nuclear weapons, you know, f- reconstructing nuclear weapons from uh, residues in the atmosphere, and they agree with me. 
what's also interesting is Stanton Friedman, the guest on uh, just the previous hour, has also looked at this and agrees with me. He says any any alien visiting this planet would know that from sampling our atmosphere that we've set off a lot of nuclear weapons. So um, I regard that as, uh, uh, of course, I've always felt Stanton was a gentleman and a scholar, but, but I was very heartened by his support in this. And he is a trained nuclear physicist. I'm a plasma physicist. Basically, I learned a lot of nuclear physics, but my major focus was plasmas. Uh, however, what's interesting is the two sites of the um, what appears to have been the nuclear explosions that happened midair. Uh, and by the way, that's like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They did not leave big craters at Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the bombs went off. Uh, and that was not done for humanitarian reasons. That was done to maximize the blast effect in the atmosphere. Uh, but if you look downwind of both sites where the strongest shock waves and the strongest um, uh, fallout would have fallen, uh, it's Cydonia Mensa and another site called Galaxius Chaos in the Utopia Planitia Basin. And uh, both of these are discussed in the online articles that you can find on the net and uh, also in the book uh, Death on Mars. And um, there at Galaxis Chaos, there's another large face, carved face, similar to the one in Cydonia. And uh, we have known about that one since about 1984 and uh, published that. Lifeonmars.pub is uh, the website. Lifeonmars.pub. Like English pub, yes. Uh, Do you have reason then to believe that this is you know, why they sent the rover back up there to collect yeah, further data? Yeah, they carefully avoided the areas of, of actual, um, you know, where we found archaeological remains. Uh, by the way, the, the civilization on Mars looks as though it was primitive, humanoid, and, um, um, and, and of course, it is dead now. And... One reason I believe the U.S. government is allowing this to come out is because this is the best way to break it to the break the news to humanity that we are not alone in the universe, and that the universe is can sometimes be a very dangerous place. Well, if someone had nukes 250 million years ago, I don't even want to go there. I mean, in terms of what they would have now, in terms of the capability. <laughs> well, whoever did this, I think, is long gone. The civilization on Mars that was targeted, I mean, people don't drop these enormous hydrogen bombs out of space and have them explode on midair for no reason. Apparently, they were targeting somebody, and the target was a what appears to have been a very primitive kind of Bronze Age civilization uh, with who carved faces, uh, large faces that were humanoid. I mean, they don't have big fangs or horns on their head or anything like that. They look like pretty cl- They look somewhat similar to human faces. And um, this is actually the best way. This is actually a godsend. This is the best way to break it to the... Um, public on Earth, that we are not alone in the universe. There are other people out there. And um, 
by, you know, finding a dead civilization, a dead humanoid primitive civilization. This is absolutely no threat. No, it, it presents no threat to the human race. It's just basically a passive object of study. Now, the fact that somebody dropped hydrogen bombs on Mars uh, but is long gone uh, suggests that the universe could, can be a very dangerous place. We already knew that. We know that a comet or asteroid could plow into the Earth and destroy all of humanity if we're not careful. So um, I've looked at various scenarios for that the government would could employ to kind of break it to the people that we're not alone in the universe. One of the ideas is, you know, discovering an alien broadcast from some other star. And, however, as... Carl Sagan explored in his novel Contact. I'm sure you saw the movie and uh, or read the oh, novel. Oh yes, oh yes. This created a crisis on Earth because there was, you know, there was division over whether we should respond to um, the broadcast that we were receiving, and of course it sent us plans to build a machine, and this created a lot of anxiety on Earth. So it created a crisis and. Uh, the U.S. government and, of course, the governments of the other superpowers don't want a crisis. They want to find, um, like, a dead civilization that we can study, and it's primitive, it's dead, and uh, <clears throat> it was humanoid, looks like us, at least roughly. And this is the very best way to break it to the people, that intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe. By so, finding so it on a nearby planet. So it's the soft cell, I guess, what you're saying. It's yeah, it's a soft landing for the human race. What sort of non-threatening? Uh, yeah. What sort of indications do you have, uh, or have you had since your lecture at I think it was the, uh, the Aeronautics Institute? Yeah, there's a yeah. space conference. Right. In, yeah. In uh, yeah. 2016, space conference put on by the American Institute of Aeronautics mm -hmm. and Astronautics. In, how did the uh, people Beach, respond? California. It's quite a prestigious conference, yeah. and they allowed me to present it. How did the people respond to your, to your uh, data? The response was stunned. They were stunned. Um, the room was packed. Uh, they bombarded me with questions afterwards. Um, a general there was some. There was some um, uh, fear, I could see, on some people's faces. Uh, most of them, uh, especially the younger students, uh, uh, were just quite just mesmerized. They had never seen all this evidence laid out in this way. In a, in a, in, I was a scientist speaking to a room full of other scientists and engineers, mm -hmm. and uh, it was uh, the response was quite gratifying. It, was there any um, sort of instances of, no, the data could be sort of skewed this way or skewed that way? It doesn't seem um, to be the pr provocative I, uh, opinion. I did not uh, encounter anybody, uh, you know, none of the questions, no one asked a question like this. Well, one person said, you know, is there some natural explanation for these isotopes? And... Um, you know, the ensemble of evidence, I would say there is no known natural phenomenon that could cause this. Um, you know, the, the, the molten glass at the sites, the radioactive scars, the fact that the meteorites we get from Mars, some of the younger ones show intense irradiation by neutrons. 
uh, and of course the isotopes in the atmosphere. Um, there is no known natural phenomenon that can cause this array of effects um, that you know that is known. It could be some completely unknown astrophysical phenomenon. Maybe a blob of antimatter fell in from space and exploded on Mars, or two of them. But nothing we've ever seen can do anything like this that was natural. The only thing known is uh, what we set off on Earth. Only on a, this is a, these are these would have been weapons as big as the Empire State Building dropped onto Mars from space. Is it, is it time now to start looking elsewhere in our galactic backyard for uh, signatures of a of nuclear holocaust? I'm, I'm thinking, you well, know... Well, the, the, the only reason we've been able to do this is they have investigated Mars so thoroughly in the last two decades. And uh, part of the reason that Mars has been the target of such intensive investigation is because I believe because of the work of DiPietro and Molinar in, in discovering the Cydonia face and the pyramid. And mainstream scientists will say, oh, no, it had nothing to do with it. Mars has always been fascinating. No, before they discovered the, um, the pyramid and the face was investigated, in, you know, two good images of the face um, at Cydonia by DiPietro and Molinar, People had basically said, oh, well, Mars isn't interesting anymore. It's just like the moon. It's dead. Um, we're going to move on to Europa, you know, the, the big moon of Saturn that starred in the uh, science fiction uh, movie 2010. Right. And that, that basically that, that's what people's attitude with, that the large planets, uh, uh, Jupiter and Saturn, were, and, of course, the moon Titan, were far more interesting than Mars was. But uh, because of um, <laughs> DePetro and Molinar uh, making such a big fuss about the uh, Cydonia, Mars suddenly became uh, the most valuable piece of real estate in the solar system. I'm just uh, thinking of uh, Joseph Farrell uh, and his book, The Cosmic Wars, and, and evidence, uh, possible evidence for nuclear warfare elsewhere in, in oh, the yes. galaxy. Well, it could be. There is evidence that it may have occurred on Earth. Right. Well, yes, we can talk about Robert, uh, Robert, Robert Oppenheimer when he was asked, you know, is this the first time a bomb has been detonated? And he said, yes, in modern times. <laughs> uh, That's right. Then there's the question of Venus. Why does it spin the other way? You know, is it possible, oh, oh, a nuclear yeah, blast? We're surrounded by mysteries, and uh, once you accept the idea that we're not alone in the universe, that there are other intelligent beings that would have same similar passions as our own then uh you have to look at everything with new eyes indeed listen i've got to uh, take a time out we'll come back and we'll look at some more things with new eyes john brandenburg author of death on mars victor vigiani in studio stay with us keeping an eye on the new world order this is the conspiracy show with richard Serrett from zoomer radio to speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free 
at 1-866-740-4740. Dr. John Brandenburg, Death on Mars is the book, and uh, the website, Life, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the website again, John, is lifeonmars.pub. Uh, .pub, all right. All one word. Evidence of a nuclear holocaust on the Red Planet 250 million years ago. Um, we had the Drake Equation, which attempted to estimate, you know, how much, uh, how many other civilizations might be out there. Right. And then in response to that, we had Enrico Fermi's paradox, which says, you know, why aren't they here? Well, you may, you may have <laughs> nailed down the answer. Well, uh, maybe the really and truly intelligent species out there keep a low profile. Well, or if they, had, if they had... Unlike develop- us human beings who are basically holding a rock concert... And with a huge bonfire, we're holding basically a Burning Man celebration <laughs> in the middle of this ghost town that is the universe as we understand it. I mean, anyone out there who is looking for somebody like us could find us. The estimates are now, by the way, that we could detect ourselves within 100 light years. If somebody was 100 light years from us who had similar technology as ourselves, they could detect us. Hmm. We make so much radio noise. But if if uh, they had nukes 250 million years ago and they they weren't afraid to use them, um, maybe you know, they just didn't survive. They oh, well, I, I'm sure cosmic karma caught up with them eventually. Um, I mean, I you know you have to um, you have to figure that uh, well. They have, certainly haven't been back here to polish us off. We're still fine. Um, and uh, I don't believe you can get away with doing things like that. I just don't believe it. And uh, I also write science fiction, so I've kind of tried to kind of wrap my mind away around the entire cosmos, the, the way it may run out there. Uh, I wrote a novel called Morningstar Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up. Um, I wrote under a pen name, Victor Norgard, and it's based on the rumors I heard in Washington, D.C. when I worked there. Well, that's, that's what I'd like to broach for a second. Sure. Is, is the, the idea that um, you've, been, you know, you've been having your work sanctioned and legitimized by the Pentagon uh, in publishing it. And, and being well, not, able to, not officially. Well, it'd be back to whatever that, whatever that function is. Um, would, would, would you sense that there could be some sort of progress towards more of this kind of behavior? Uh, is, is there a plan in place? Uh, what would, I mean, have you heard something that's going to be happening next? Like the whole motivation of this is absolutely fascinating. Well, um, if you, you may have seen the, the superb uh, science fiction movie Arrival recently. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm itching to. It's, it's very good, and... Um, you know, one of the theories uh, in the in the community of us who believes that you know the government is aware of extraterrestrial um, presence out there um, is that this movie looks like it was kind of preparing the public for some kind of announcement or something. You're connecting the dots, I guess. Huh? I'm, I guess I'm just connecting the dots. It's. Yeah, it's, I, I complained to a friend of mine who's a ufologist. I said, uh, I said, Don, 
his name is Don Ecker, and he's a really smart guy. And I said, Don, the problem with this field is there are no facts. <laughs> there are only reports, <laughs> rumors. Um, so uh, we're just sort of connecting the dots. Um, that movie was basically, I think, preparing the public for an announcement that we're not alone in the universe. Are you following the uh, the, the work of uh, Robert Hastings and, uh, and and Robert Salas in regards to the nuclear shutdowns? The these craft, these people, these beings, or whatever they're reporting, well, they really like to hang around these places and shut down the machinery. Well, they yes, I've heard uh, many reports of that. Um, however, the government. Um, in this country went to great lengths to make sure that people couldn't do things like that. Because if somebody from outer space can do it, the Russians might be able to do it. And um, in order to keep nuclear deterrence effective, you had to have a credible strike force. Um, and so uh, it may be the government learned from whatever happened uh, how to prevent that. And uh, there were certainly no the the reports of shutdowns that I've heard were always isolated incidents at specific sites that maybe you know two or three nuclear weapon systems were shut down and um, I also heard one very fascinating report. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll get you to that, hold on to that, uh, uh, Dr. Brandon Berg, sure. and we'll pick up on that on the other side. Lifeonmars.pub is the website. Evidence. For a nuclear holocaust on the red planet 250 million years ago. More with John and Victor Vigiani in studio right after this. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at one 866 740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Brandenburg stays with us. LifeOnMars.pub, the website. Victor Vigiani in studio. Zealand News Network. And it's zealandcommunications.blogspot.ca. Um, John, we were I mentioned earlier uh, Robert Oppenheimer uh, uh, sort yes. of being heard off mic. I don't know if this is an apocryphal story or not, but uh, was asked, you know, after, I guess it was the, the detonation at Trinity, whether this is the first uh, detonation of a nuclear bomb, and he said, supposedly, yes, in modern times. Um, yes. First of all, what are your thoughts? I mean, the, the, there has been some suggestion that there was, um, that there is evidence of, a, of, an, of ancient nuclear war in, in places like the Indus Valley in India. Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, the, I guess it's y- Yondo Daro uh, area. Uh, there's a, you know, which means just Hill of the Dead in um, what is presently Pakistan in the Indus Valley. Um, there is evidence of the same kind of trinitite glass. Um, and there's the account in the Hindu uh, scriptures of 
what looks like an extraterrestrial colony, which then had a civil war separated into into two factions, which then had a nuclear war between them. And um, when they did uh, do excavations at uh, that as an archaeological site, they found large numbers of unburied bodies lying in the streets of the ruins uh, that hadn't even been molested by scavengers, you know, wild dogs, which are very common there, indicating that they, uh, you know, like consistent with them being radioactive, the whole site being so radioactive that not even wild dogs could venture there to prey on the dead. Um, What's the timeline on that, Eight, twelve thousand 12,000 years ago? Uh, yes, I, I would say probably 10,000 years ago. Uh, It's funny, you can't find a lot of information about that site. Um, The uh, Indian and Pakistani governments uh, kind of kept it quiet. And uh, and the British government before that, that was running the place, uh, just kept it quiet. And so I'm sure that uh, Oppenheimer was aware of that. And... um, and and so it's a you know we we have we have to look at everything with new eyes now we have to realize that the human race is not uh not the most despicable thing in the universe <laughs> apparently we're just part of its fabric um i explore this in the novel morningstar pass which has its comic moments um the there are two heroines who are a uh, they're they're newscasters on a, a network like Fox News or CNN, you know, and of course they're very both very attractive. Of course, one is Asian, one is uh, Jewish and Ukrainian, and they are then become privy to all these government documents being leaked by somebody about the UFO cover up. So they investigate and they they're talking to abductees and <laughs> they finally conclude that the rest of the universe is just as uh, just as screwed up as this planet <laughs> maybe I, even more I feel much better now thank you for that yes, I know. it's so nice to be normal isn't it <laughs> I, well uh, can, can you, being can you American, add, we're used to being blamed for everything. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could share your thoughts on the, the, this whole idea of, like, and I keep on going back to it again, is the, the, the planets in place. Uh, number one, have you ever been cautioned about what to say or not to say on, on one hand? And <laughs> h- how will this eventually play out in the mainstream? I really want to know uh, well, more about that. Um, I, think just oh, a, I believe it'll eventually just be discussed quite widely in the uh, open, in the mainstream press. Uh, the fact that they, you know, I was allowed to come and give a paper on it at a fairly high-profile con- uh, um, conference, space conference, indicated that it passed. It passed all of the normal places where you know you would people would have veto power. The powers that be would have had veto power over it, and um, instead, and in fact, I presented evidence uh, for the uh, just the anomalous nuclear explosions at um, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in 2015 and uh, that was that was allowed in people came and argued with me and 
one fellow, though, after looking at all of the evidence, just asked me, well, did they do it to themselves or did somebody else do it? How do you feel that the new administration might look at this information, or do they have a role at all um, in how they're participating well, in this? every time you get a new administration, uh, you know, there's a, a, you know, generally they reexamine everything with new eyes. Uh, the the Obama administration tended to be uh, kind of more introspective. Uh, they tended, um, they weren't very interested in human space life, for instance. Uh, they were they were more interested in things like global warming and things like that, those sort of scientific issues, which are certainly very important. So their emphasis was more on um, uh, the plight of the Earth rather than going into outer space. I mean, you, you really, and traditionally, the uh, liberal wing of the Democratic Party, which the president, uh, presidency represented, uh, was very much um, concerned with the internal dynamics of the United States and, you know, making that run better uh, if they could, and kind of withdrawal. They they were interested maybe in academic kind of views of outer space, but certainly not uh, um, not astronauts charging around. Uh, that was. Um, uh, that was always viewed as an extravagance. It's sort of a navel-gazing rather than looking beyond. My, my I, sense is Trump I, wants I would, to go back to I the would, moon. Uh, yes, uh, your words, I would agree. I would agree with that characterization. Um, but, you know, they, the, the, the problems of, um, of environmental change, uh, I, I, I consider to be uh, very real. We have to deal with that in sure. some national manner. But John, my sense is, that, or I, I may have read this somewhere or heard it, but that, that, that Trump is, is uh, game to go back to the moon. Uh, yes, I have heard that, and uh, I I uh, view that that is a um, much better outlook than we have had. Um, but of course, I'm a space guy. Um, <clears throat> I will say that the only rational response to what we are finding on Mars is that we must become a spacefaring people. Um, we cannot just sit here on this planet and wait to be discovered by somebody else. Any thoughts on, on out? We have to go to Mars. We have to find out what happened. Was this some some very unknown, weird astrophysical phenomenon that occurred on Mars? Was it um, an attack by one species onto a more primitive species? Um, was Mars more Earth-like in the past, as it, as all of this suggests, and then it was destroyed? We have to go up there, and we have to send people up there. You could drive rovers around. Any archaeologist will tell you you could drive a rover, Mars rover, around on an archaeological site for years and not find anything. Well, piles of rubble. Are you familiar? You dig. Are you familiar, John, with the uh, the new Ron Ron Howard production called Mars? It's a two. Uh, so no, far, but uh, it's I, fascinating. I, I'm not uh, familiar with the details of it. Do they find some uh, remains of a dead civilization or something? No, actually, it's a story of how the, a corporation took over in America and sent uh, a vehicle to Mars with a contingent of about ten people, and how they got there, how they landed, and the travails they're going through while they're there. They really haven't gotten into that. It's only been two episodes so far, but oh, let me okay. tell you, it, it's I, riveting. It's I, absolutely riveting. Oh, uh, uh, that's very interesting. I. Um, I guess I've been a little distracted by everything. Um, uh, to me, 
um, you know, there was there was the idea of the Cydonia face being the remains of the civilization in mission to Mars, um, and uh, but the most people like Ron Howard tend to avoid things like that. Um, uh, but uh, but you know, I do believe that uh, this will be, I believe, very soon discussed widely in the mainstream media. Well, you were asked to publish by the Pentagon. Now you've done that. So right. did you go back to them? Uh, did you return their, their uh, serve? No, or? what's interesting was one of the uh, people that I dealt with at the time has now retired from the intelligence agency. Wherefore, he showed up at one of the first presentations of this. <laughs> I presented it at the Mars Society meeting in Houston, Texas. And he showed up just for the... <laughs> Wow. So I saw him there, and we I took him out, and we had a few beers in the local bar and discussed uh, things, and um, <clears throat> he he watched uh, with some amusement while I showed, uh, you know, um, I had a private uh, viewing room where I could show people the entire hypothesis, and I showed a number of visiting scientists, particularly from Russia, and he was standing, he was sitting there, uh, uh, drinking a glass of wine, watching all this, <laughs> obviously with approval. So, uh, so uh, you know, they, uh, no one has told me to be quiet about this at all. Is there also some sort of movement towards a potential international flavor to all of this? Oh, uh, I was sitting there at the space conference in Long Beach, and the astronauts, a panel of astronauts and NASA officials, and then um, a, an official from the uh, European Space Agency, and I think it, someone from the Soviet, the Russian space program, not Soviet, the Russian space program, they were talking about that any mission to Mars would be based around the space station consortium, which is very international. And the <clears throat> uh, U.S. Uh, manned spaceflight program, the human spaceflight program, is entirely geared now to um, coordinating with the Russians on everything. Now, I do not believe that will change under uh, the Trump administration. Very quickly, how do you feel about terraforming the Red Planet? Oh, eventually I believe we could do that. We will be basically resuscitating a planet that was similar to ourselves. Uh, you know, I don't think, I, I think terraforming is a little less precise than basically resuscitating Mars to being a living, uh, you know, vital planet like it used to be. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We're going to have to have you back because I know you're uh, you're um, an authority on the moon, and uh, that's kind of a favorite subject of mine, uh-huh. whether or not it's, in fact, uh, artificial. We'll get into that next time if you're good for that job. I think it's a ball of rock myself. (laughs) It's not made of green cheese, however. No, but uh, there's some amazing coincidences, as you well know. Uh, Yes, it is an unusual. uh, We are certainly blessed to have this nice moon. It's just too perfect. All right, uh, my thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, John Brandenburg. Appreciate your time. Victor Vigiani to you as well. Back next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.